Hello and welcome back to Young Nostalgia, the podcast that takes a trip down memory lane from two guys that never lived it. I'm Nolan and beside me is Ben and I thank you for joining us as we talk about our passion for the past while being young at heart. Today we're coming at you with our October Rat Pack special third episode and we're talking about Mr. Show Business himself. Sammy Davis Jr., episode number 16 of Young Nostalgia, Mr. Show Business. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate the show where you get your podcast and share the love. We are on iTunes, Google Play, as well as Stitcher, and leave any positive review, and it always helps us grow and share the show. Ben, how are you doing today, bud? It's been a good day. How was your day, Nolan? Not too bad for a Monday. We're getting through it. <laughs> so let's jump right in to all about Mr. Show Business. A little bit of a snaps, uh, synopsis. He was born in New York City, New York. He overcame prevailing racism throughout his career, and it really helped him establish himself in the in, in, as an entertainment legend throughout the world. Um, he became a very successful comedian, actor, dancer, and singer, pretty much wearing a hat of all trades, which is dubbed the name Mr. Show Business um, just because he was able to perform at a drop of a hat and do anything you could ask. Um, as his fame grew, his refusal to appear in any clubs that practiced racial segregation led to the integration of several venues throughout Miami Beach as well as Las Vegas. And we see this um, kind of ideology foster in um, Frank Sinatra as well. And as we all know, Sammy Davis and Frank Sinatra were very close friends, and they kind of just fed off each other um, when it came to pushing the boundaries and kind of just very revolutionized the entertainment world when it came to um, the integration and desegregation of popular venues. All right, so without further ado, Ben, take us away. What do we got? All right, first off, we're going to back up a little bit. Uh Sammy Davis was born Samuel George Davis Jr. Um, he was actually born in Harlem on December 8th of 1925. Um, and really early in life, he was uh, initially raised by his paternal grandmother. Um, this is after Davis's parents, Davis's parents split up when he was about three years old. Uh, Excuse me, his parents split shortly after birth, and when he was around three years old, he went to live with his father, um, who was a he, he was a career entertainer in a dance group, um, which just kind of shows right there how early uh, entertainment was ingrained into uh, Sammy Davis's life. I almost feel like a part of being so talented is also just natural talent passed within the family. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, he, he's obviously, you know... He, at least his father, anyway, was um, a fairly successful entertainer, and you know, the the men, if if nothing, if nothing else, you know, as far as skills and that sort of thing, uh, kind of inherent talent. I mean, there's just that mentality that, you know, from being with his father from such an early age and being around that, you know, that you know just has to rub off on a kid as well. Exactly. So, kind of going along with that, um, Davis was there on a lot of tours tours with his father and uh he eventually learned to tap dance first at a very um early age and then you know once he was a proficient tap dancer um he began performing with his father um and shortly after this time uh sammy davis's uncle became a third member of the group and they started touring as the will mist will maston trio um and this is really when 
uh, Davis, he really, he was always been around the uh, show business kind of atmosphere. This is really, he really kind of got thrust into it. He was doing shows uh, on a regular basis. Um, and because of this, um, he was always on the road, there was always gigs, and so he never really was able to go to school and receive an actual education, even though his father did on occasion. He would hire tours uh, kind of here and there when there was time. Um, excuse me, tutors, um, and throughout the 30s, um, but it's never really anything like uh, formal schooling. Yeah, he was kind of just raised by the people around him, and he almost was thrown into the life skills that people learn in such a, a high-stakes environment of entertainment. So his education was more of how to work the business and be able to just hone his own natural ability to entertain which is i mean a very valuable asset especially back then because they didn't have tvs and and instant playing music that you could just download over the cloud i mean this was like in your face raw entertainment for the time right entertainers you know they weren't able to make a recording or any or uh shoot a uh a scene or anything like that, depending on the, the, the media style, you know, there was no editing, there was no mixing or anything like that. I mean, you had to be a skilled entertainer just to be able to go out there and absolutely nail it every time. Hence the name Mr. Show Business, but <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And, you know, as part of this traveling around and being so engrossed in show business, um, you know, he not he started off as uh, an accomplished dancer, but very, very shortly afterwards, he... he uh, became a skilled singer he played multiple multiple instruments and he was a uh, pretty accomplished comedian uh, very early on he, and, and it didn't take him long at all to become you know the star of the trio i mean people were really going to see him for the most part mm-hmm. yeah it was around uh it was around this time uh in 1933 when he made a, his first appearance in film um, and this was a short titled Rufus Jones for President. <laughs> um, and it, it's not like it was a, a full-length movie or anything like that, but it was just kind of one of those uh, foot-in-the-door moments that, you know, kind of really gets us uh, an actor's uh, career started. Mm-hmm. And it, the, there really wasn't much uh, filmography work really in between this 1933 short and the time he had to leave, uh, he was drafted into the Army uh, for World War II in 1943. Um, so his career was kind of put on hold there um, during his tour of service. And kind of expected, you know, along with the times, there was, uh, he directly experienced, uh, there was a lot of racial pre- prejudice um, in his military experience that, his, he was really kind of sheltered from uh, with his father. Um, he was a he was a young kid, and that kind of lifestyle is real easy to be kind of sheltered away from um, that sort of racism that was it was commonplace, you know, in different places they traveled. But when uh, moving into the army life, uh, there really wasn't a whole lot of um, you know venues you could escape from that sort of thing. Yeah, and and being so sheltered and you know on the go so much having that kind of just awful punch in the face in such an environment that you know you're 
the guy next to you is supposed to have your back is so hard to get used to. You know what I mean? It's like walking into just a concrete wall and he <laughs> didn't even know it was there. Yeah, and it's got to be such a, a culture shock going from those two so polar opposite atmospheres. Um, and like you said, it, it's not only not only a show business life, but that the sheltered life. You know, his father really kind of worked to protect him from that sort of thing. And, you know, he just, boom, gets shipped off to shipped off to war and you're kind of he was just kind of dropped head first right down in the middle of it yeah it did, it did help after a while um he kind of found his way into a entertainment regiment um where he was able to perform and not well not only was he able to perform but he was with this group he was kind of ensured a a little bit better um level of safety and it, he was able to earn a little bit more respect, you know, being able to show, you know, his his, his performance skills. Um, and, you know, he's not, you know, in a foxhole or anything like that, you know, just with the rest of the guys. I mean, he was kind of able to bring himself up a little bit and kind of show what, you know, he could really, what he could really do. Yeah, I, I always, when I read this and kind of researched it a little bit, I thought it was so cool to kind of think of it in a way of his uh, his natural ability to adapt so quickly. Because mm-hmm. when it comes to like comedy and an entertainment business, things could change or you know something could go wrong on set and you might not be prepared for it. But he made the best of the worst situation when it came to that. And then from there, it only boosts his career. Right. And like you said, it's kind of turning, you know, getting the best out of a bad situation. You know, he gets shipped off to war, I mean, which is, for someone who's just starting a career like this anyway, I mean, that, that would be very rough to, you know, continue your career after your service. And, mm-hmm. you know, he ends up finding his way into where he can, you know, continue doing what he loves. And it's it's really it's really part of his career. It's just kind of a different, a whole different venue. Yeah. All right. So coming towards um, the post-war era... Um, this is really when his career started kicking off. So he went back to perform with um, the Will Maston Trio after the war um, and pretty much gained the notoriety as it had before he left. Um, and he was still the center of attention. So ca- his career really elevated when Sammy performed with the trio and he actually opened up for Frank Sinatra at the Capitol Theater in New York in 1947. And this is really when they kind of crossed their paths for the very first time and began the never-ending close friendship (laughs) that these two had. So a tour with Mickey Rooney followed that um, opening for Frank Sinatra. I mean, any band that is trying, or any entertainer that's trying to be, like, make it in the world, if you open up for somebody so big like Frank Sinatra, you automatically put on the radar. Oh, yeah. I mean, just being... Just being around names like that and being associate, having your name associated with their name, you know, even if you're really small on a, a poster <laughs> or something like that, with you know Frank Sinatra right underneath of it, yeah, you know that's, I mean, that's going to boost your career exponentially. It's even like one of those, it's even like one of those things when you see on the films where it's like the associate, associate intern of the <laughs> left eye makeup producer, <laughs> but if they were on like. A movie that produced with Frank Sinatra, <laughs> your chances are pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. 
<laughs> so a tour with Mickey Rooney followed, as did performance that caught the ear of Decca Records, who signed Davis um, to a recording contract in 1954. So this is when he was really kind of cranking out the hits. Um, later in 1954, unfortunately, when he was in the middle of recording a soundtrack, he was driving to Los Angeles, and Davis was seriously injured in a car accident. The accident resulted in him losing an eye, and he would um, use a glass eye for the rest of his life. Um, and I believe it was his left, his left eye. His recuperation also gave him time for deep reflection. And during this, I know we kind of talked to um, talked about it before in our very first episode mm-hmm. of Young Nostalgia. He actually converted to Judaism shortly thereafter his recuperation, finding commonalities between the oppression experienced by African Americans and Jewish communities. So that's kind of interesting how he made that connection, and really such a life-altering event made him change the way he thought about life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not only is it the prejudice of the um, of just being African American, and then I'm sh- later in life, you know, there's it's not necessarily as w- in the United States was as widespread as the. Uh, racism against African Americans, but there's also you know a certain amount of prejudice against uh, Jewish people, and so you know with Sammy Davis Jr. after this transition, you know he's really kind of got both going against him. Uh huh. And you know what I mean? He's been so strong in standing up for what he believes in. Um, I mean, like he he just wanted to be part of causes that he knew he could get behind. Mm-hmm. Which was awesome. Yeah, and that's just, I mean, that's just kind of his whole life. That's what he's done. <clears throat> and so the injury itself did not slow his career at all. Um, continuing on, in 1955, he, um, his first two albums, which were starring Sammy Davis Jr. and Sammy Davis Jr. Sings Just for Lovers, were released to both critical, critical acclaim and commercial success, which in turn led to headlining performances in Las Vegas and New York. Almost like jumping in the heels and the shoes of Frank Sinatra because Sinatra really got his start in New York when he was recognized and then had mm-hmm. a good foothold in Las Vegas. And this is where everyone just kind of converges on what the Rat Pack was. Um, and, and really, it just those two albums skyrocketed Davis's career. Oh, yeah. And the, the, the Las Vegas and New York, I mean, you can just see... That's that is really the common denominator in all of the rack pack guys that we've talked about. You know that is that is one time in one area that they really all cross paths and it kind of kind of intertwined them and boosted their career together. Yeah. Um, so his continuous success led to further appearances in films on television shows, including Anna Luquesta, nineteen fifty eight, with um, Eartha Kitt. Uh, Porgy and Bess, 1959, with Dorothy Dandridge and Sidney uh, Poitier. Um, feel free to call me out if I am <laughs> not pronouncing any of these right. And the Frank Sinatra Show in 1958, which is a very big um, hit TV show and actually um, was so high in the numbers, he was able to stretch it to two years of consistent running. Mm-hmm. Um, and around this time, Davis made his Broadway debut as well. Um, starring in the 1956 hit musical Mr. Wonderful alongside members of his family and another legendary dancer, Cheetah Rivera. And from there, the rest is history. What do you <laughs> got, dude? Yeah, I mean, 
this this time period in the 50s it was just non-stop action for sammy davis jr um it was there was film there was uh his first two albums coming out in mid 1950s i mean he just he kind of hit the ground running um and it, it just it never really slowed down from there so we'll kind of kind of move on into the rat pack era here um he was already his popularity was already firmly established um by 1960 um where he really kind of moved in with the you know the rat pack guys dino frank sinatra um and at, at this time i mean that was is that only is just shoving his career forward even even harder um and you know working with the rat pack and and also his own his own personal career he was um featured in several um several popular movies um there was a man called adam in 1966 um uh where he had a very prominent role opposite louis armstrong um he was also in bob foss's uh sweet charity um in 1969 with shirley mclean um where davis played a charismatic singing and strutting guru big daddy um (laughs) (laughs) um and alongside move, uh, his movie career, he was also still releasing albums um, for Decca, of course, and as and uh, Reprise. Um, he was actually uh, the first artist signed by Reprise, um, which of course was launched by Frank Sinatra, which we talked about a little bit last week. Yeah, does I mean doesn't really surprise me in the least either. Um, just like the close bond that they had doesn't surprise me that they signed oh yeah not you know it's, it's, it's not surprising that davis was signed with reprise at all and it's also not surprising that it, he was the first outside artist to sign with to sign with them exactly um, it, you know and it, one thing i wanted to say about the films too i mean we talked about the ones that he wasn't with the rat pack in but then i was watching the 1960 um oceans 11 with the mm-hmm. uh, coveted rat pack <laughs> and he was of course the one to be given a musical number and like starts dancing around and stuff about like <laughs> 20 minutes into the film and i was like you know what leave it to sammy davis to to put his nod in there of, of everything he can do <laughs> yeah that is it, i mean that's just like the perfect role for him right there just you know right there boom in the early in the movie just give him a singing and dancing part <laughs> right <laughs> um Davis was uh, later nominated for Record of the Year Grammy um, for his song "What Can of What Kind of a Fool Am I," um, which reached the top twenty <laughs> Billboard charts. Um, what kind of fool am I? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, in 1966, 1966, um, he actually hosted his very own short-lived variety series. Um, it was called the Sammy Davis Jr. Show. Pretty original. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I guess coming up after like the that. Frank Sinatra show, you got the Sammy Davis Jr. Show. <laughs> um, and then uh, years later, from 1975 to 1977, he actually uh, hosted another show. This time, it was a syndicated talk show um, called Sammy and Company, uh, which ran for, of course, two years and cool that that was just kind of a 
I mean, that was only just a brief overview of what happened, you know, kind of in the 1960s. And that was just outside of his, that was separate from, you know, his Rat Pack involvement. We've talked about, you know, uh, the the Rat Pack in, in multiple other shows. And, you know, all of this stuff is just part of his own career, let alone, you know, the whole scope of everything he did collaborating with the other guys. Yeah, well, what I always think is always interesting, like, Throughout the late 50s into the 60s, you see a lot of the rap, the main Rat Pack players like uh, Sammy, Frank Sinatra, and Dino, where they kind of start branching off and doing things that support other artists. So like the Sammy, Sammy and Company and the Sammy Davis Jr. show, where they're, like, they're hosts of a variety show that gets exposure to other people. Like, they're made. Their name is in lights. They know, like, everyone knows who these guys are. Oh, yeah. And it's so interesting where it's like you get to that point and it's like, you know what? I want to discover who else is out there, spread the love of this kind of style. And, I mean, that, that's kind of what they did with their careers at that time. Yeah. And it's like kind of like what you said. I mean, it's they they were hosting these shows and they're already these huge artists. Like, really, there's there's not much higher you can get. So you might as well have, um, you know, your your friends and up upcoming um, artists that you like, you might as well just kind of bring them on and give them a, a jump start, show them the ropes, that sort of thing, um, and kind of you know just try to build everybody up because you know you're already on top. Where else are you gonna go? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> we've dabbled a little bit into the social activism that um, Sammy Davis always did, and uh, just a little bit more to add on top. So despite what appeared to be a free-swinging playboy style of the Rat Pack and the era, a lifetime of enduring racial prejudice led Davis to use fame for many political means. So during the 1960s, he became active in the civil rights movement, participating in, 19, in the 1963 um, famous March on Washington and refusing to perform at racially segregated nightclubs, which obviously um, led to more integration through Miami Beach and Las Vegas venues that really wanted the names of Frank Sinatra, Dino, and Sammy Davis there because it's good it's good business to have those kind of guys there, but it's bad mm-hmm. business for not integrating and supporting such a welcoming environment that they made the swing era to be. Right, and it wasn't it wasn't just Sammy. It was whether it was a nightclub or whatever venue if it was just segregated and they were going to let sammy perform or if it was segregated and they sometimes they they really didn't want sammy to perform but you know the rest of the guys were like you know what you know if if you know there's any anything funny going on here whether you know you want sammy to perform you know for a segregated audience or you don't want sammy at all well you don't get us either and exactly. so you know it's you kind of all or nothing kind of kind of uh deals here but you know it's just kind of part of the time uh-huh and then moving on it says here davis also challenged the bigotry of the era by marrying swedish actress may Britt. and i know we talked about this a little <laughs> bit too um he married him married, married her at a time when interracial marriages were forbidden by law in 31 states 31 states and we also put in um little side note here so president jfk is in fact uh in fact requested that the couple not appear at his inauguration so as not to anger white southerners i mean come on now yeah 
I mean, it's one of the biggest names of the time period. Okay. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's just it's weird looking back on something like that because it's not something that we would ever see in our lifetime, really. Yeah. Um, it's just weird that that was even, you know, a consideration, let alone actually happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that you know that really goes for a lot of stuff we talk about, I guess. Very but, true. Uh, all right, moving on. Um, kind of moving on to uh, his later life a little bit. Um, his career really, uh, it kind of peaked a little bit, but it still ran very strong into the 70s and 80s. Um, he actually got his first number one chart hit with 1972's Candyman. Um, so at this time, his career was still really, really going strong. And he was even... Uh, still appearing in films as late as the 80s as well. Um, he was in 1981's The Cannonball Run with Burt Reynolds and Roger Moore, as well as 1989's Tap with Gregory Hines. Um, you know, that kind of... As late as 1989, that was very uh, shortly before his death. Um, he only um, he only lived for about another year before he passed away, and so... Um, you know, making movies that late in life is, and late in your career is still pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, he was a guest on a wide variety of television shows. Um, he was on The Tonight Show, The Carol Burnett Show, um, All in the Family, which we've talked about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, on The Jeffersons, and he was actually on several soap operas as well, which is something I didn't know before we started doing some work on this show. Um, he was in General Hospital and One Life to Live. <laughs> Interesting. Is General Hospital still a thing? I have absolutely no idea. Because w- one of them was like the longest running soap opera ever or something. Yeah, I remember Yeah, I remember something about that, but I have no idea if it's actually still going or not. Uh, I don't know. Knows? I do not really pay attention to soap operas, <laughs> so I don't yeah. really know. <laughs> hey, don't tell anybody else, but uh, I'm a diehard fan. <laughs> Were you a General Hospital fan? Yes. <laughs> Just oh, kidding. Geez. I've never seen a, a single episode in my entire life. All right. Well, it's already out. Can't pull it back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let, let, let's move this along. <laughs> okay. <laughs> His career <laughs> continued. Um, he uh, ended up touring with uh, Sinatra and Lisa Min- Liza Minnelli uh, during the 1980s, um, even as uh, Sammy Davis's health uh, started to fade. Um, he was a very, very heavy smoker, and in 1989, uh, it was discovered that he had a tumor in his throat. Um, it was later that year in the fall, he would end up giving his final performance, um, at the Harris Casino in Lake Tahoe. Uh, shortly, very shortly after that, Davis underwent radiation therapy, where, and afterwards, they thought that it uh, that his cancer was in remission, and but it later discovered that it, very shortly after um, they discovered that it had returned. Um, so on May 16th of 1990, Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, ended up passing away at his home in Beverly Hills, California. Um, he was uh, it lived a pretty long life, but he still died only at the age of 64. And very shortly before his death, his health had really started to decline. Um, he was honored by 
uh, an array of his peers at a February television tribute. So it was a whole television special, nothing de- but devoted to nothing but Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah, everything from his past performances to um, events that he's shown up at, famous photos, um, interviews, everything in between, really. Um, pretty much just showcasing what Sammy Davis did for the industry and um, really just for people around the world. Yeah, I wonder if you can still find that online. I'd uh, So transitioning into his personal life a little bit, um, kind of rounding out the episode, Davis was seriously involved with um, bombshell actress Kim Novak in the 1950s, though the union faced much harassment due to the racial climate of the day, much like um, him marrying Mae Britt. So Davis was ultimately married three times, first briefly to singer um, Lorraine White, and then um, to then to May Britt in 1960, with the two having a biological daughter as well as two adopted sons. Um, May Britt and Davis um, divorced by the end of the decade, and Davis remarried in 1970 to dancer um, Alto Vis who remained with him until his passing. So they adapted another son as well. So in total, um, Sammy Davis had two daughters with May Britt and two adopted sons. And then three adopted sons. Three adopted. So um, with the harshness of his early years, um, not to be underestimated, uh, Davis struggled throughout much of his life with addictions, um, scumming, succumbing to alcohol and drug abuse after his split with Britt, um, kind of spiraling down into some depression um, and having a major gambling problem that ate up millions of dollars. Which I can see how that would be very easy to have happen when you uh, are constantly working in Las Vegas. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. And, like, and just the constant go, go, go. Um, having a life like that is very harsh, I can imagine. But Oh, yeah. Dang it, you know what, and I really wanted to end this one on a high note. Um, <laughs> Davis was a really good guy. <laughs> he, had a, he lived a great life um, and someone that we'd always like to meet and take out for a beer sometime. <laughs> I think we did kind of end on a high note a little bit. At least I noticed what happened there in that last paragraph. I s- <laughs> kind of stumbled over the uh, little notes in the margins there on pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you laughing about that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we we always try to make sure that we are pronouncing this um, and pronouncing people's names right. <laughs> so we typed out Alto Vis for Alto Alto Vis Gore, who was um, Davis's <laughs> final wife, and so we Ben typed in Alto Vis to rhyme with geese, so that way we <laughs> don't mess it up. <laughs> Uh, oh because i did i didn't gosh, think much uh, of it and then i saw like i could envision you going through that paragraph and right when you got there you like started the chuckle and you lost your composure a little bit. well i was really hoping that you'd get the last show note for the episode anyway i'm gonna wrap this up before it gets too out of hand thank you so much for listening to young nostalgia and this was episode number 16 mr show business the third installment of our october rat pack special next week we'll be rounding out our rat pack special um with the joey bishop and um, peter lawford kind of you know the external guys that kind of came and went but weren't always in the limelight when it came to the rat pack so if you like what you're hearing please leave a kind review on itunes 
You can also find us on Google Play and Stitcher. And please share and talk around. And if you have any requests or um, ideas for the show, give us a shout out at youngnostalgia2017 at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you as soon as possible. As always, we love knowing that you're listening. Leave us a kind review and it'll help us grow. And I think that about does it. Anything else, big guy? Nope. I think we got it all. All right, dude. As we (laughs) always say here on Young Nostalgia, keep the bottles empty and the ashtrays full. Take care, everybody.